Okay, you can open up your Bibles to uh, uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I'm going to read the first nine verses of this chapter for us this morning. Let's read together. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If there's one good reason to read the weekly email, it is to quickly determine how my message plans change. Uh, you'll see in the weekly email we're going to be talking about assurance today through <laughs> prayer. The assurance that is found in your life through prayer. Sadly, that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about assurance through abiding. Just, I, I waited just for all of you to write that all in your notes and then just say no. Uh, we're going to talk about verse 1 and then verse 6 today, and then next week we're going to pick up and talk about how all of this connects to prayer as well. Today we're going to be talking about assurance through abiding in Christ. And this is all a part of a big series that we've been doing all fall, just titled, Are You Sure? Perhaps on the way up the staircase this morning, you saw that poster on the wall talking about all the different Sunday school options you have, and one of them is, Are You Sure? And you came here perhaps today for no other reason than to figure out what in the world that series is all about. And the series is about, Are You Sure That You Are Truly a Christian? And perhaps this is a question you receive a lot. This is a question lots of younger uh, Christians struggle with a lot. Am I sure that I am the real deal? Am I sure that I am truly, really saved? And what we want to pursue in this uh, series, so to speak, are the foundational truths of assurance. We want to think about concepts that even you, as a young believer, can hold fast to and can apply to your life and can build on in order to increase assurance of salvation in your own heart and in your own life. And today we're in a glorious passage from John's Gospel, John 15, on abiding in Christ like a branch abides in the vine. This is a very, very popular chapter. It's a very well-loved chapter for good reason. Just a little background on the Gospel itself. Uh, John is the brother of James. James is not the James that wrote the letter of James. That is uh, the, another James. This is the brother of John that died very early on in the history of the church. Um, 
John and James were once called by Jesus the sons of thunder because of how radical they were in you know, calling down thunder from God in judgment on God's enemies. They were known for their quickness to destroy people or want people to be destroyed. And John was formally called that. We like to think of John now as the apostle of love. He went from being a son of thunder to being a son of love and abiding in Christ. Uh, this gospel is probably the last gospel that was written, probably somewhere in the 80s or 90s. John, of course, is the, the final apostle to live on earth and when he wrote this. Um, and, and, and John's purpose in writing the gospel of John is to present Jesus in a certain way. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about Matthew. We talked about how every gospel is written with a certain angle with a certain argument that they're trying to make, right? Matthew is there to show Christ as king, the long-awaited king, the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. Luke is, is written to show Jesus as the perfect man, the, the hope of the world, the, the savior that mankind needs as the perfect man. Mark is meant to show Jesus as the servant, the servant that we all need who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John is written to show Jesus as God. I mean, all the Gospels show Jesus as God, but John has particular pointedness in how he shows it to you. All throughout John's Gospel, we see Jesus being shown through signs and miracles and through his powerful teaching and through his own testimony as God, very God, God alone. Um, that is what John is meant to do. And, and you could divide John up into two parts. The first, you know, ten chapters or so, you see Jesus uh, showing himself to be God through his words and through his deeds. And then the final part of the gospel, you see Jesus showing himself to be God through his, his death and his resurrection. That's what we see in John's gospel. Um, and in this section that we're in, this section actually kind of begins in chapter 13 or so and, and goes on all the way through chapter 17. This is popularly called a section in John's Gospel. Uh, it's called the section of the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus' final words to his disciples. It, they are words of comfort to his disciples. They're words of assurance to his disciples. Now, why would his disciples need comfort, need assurance? Because Jesus is about to go away. He is about to die, and he is about to leave them in one sense. And Jesus is talking to his disciples to bring them great comfort. If he goes away, he says in chapter 14, he will come again and bring them to himself. He says in chapter 14 and chapter 16, because I am going away, something better is going to come to you. That is the Holy Spirit himself. It is better that I go away, in fact, Jesus says so that I can send the Helper to you and cause you to remember all the things that I've taught you and give you strength in life. And, and he also says, because I am going away, I'm going to continue my high priestly ministry to you and for you. And that's what you see in John 17. You see the prayers of Jesus for his own. And it is a precious chapter that we see. And you could think of it like this. John 15 kind of pulls all of these chapters together in how it is a metaphor, a, a word picture that describes all of the comfort that you have in Jesus, even though he goes away. Matter of fact, these are all the comforts you have in Jesus because he goes away. This is the blessedness that we have. That's what we see here in John 15. Kind of is the center for a reason. And we're going to look 
We're going to look at the first verse here kind of today. Um, a note about structure before we begin, a note, a note about how we, we're going to organize our points here. Um, normally I want to be very um, clear and explicit, sometimes to, to an extent that's kind of a little annoying and obnoxious about like the structure. Here's point number one, here's point number two, write this down, here's point number three. Um, so the structure here today is going to be terrible, all the same. Um, so I was writing, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk about these nine verses, and we're going we're gonna to have four points, assurance of salvation in Christ. We're going we're gonna to see how our position brings us assurance. We're going to see how God's pruning in our life brings us assurance. We're going to see how our prayers bring us assurance, and we're going to see something else that's really exciting that I'm not going to tell you until next week, and how that brings us assurance. And I started writing, and I'm like, oh boy. Well, maybe I'll just do one of those points. So we're going to start with one of those points. So I'm going to try to give it clearly to you and just make it as interesting for you as I can. We're going to start with one point now and the next three points next Sunday, hopefully. Um, if I was you, I would take notes and try to take notes. For one, you better get this one point because this is the only thing you've got to write down. Uh, two, ask yourself, how does this truth of assurance equate to good news to me? Write down things that you hear today about how this truth that we're going to be talking about today equals good news to you if you are even a young believer. Think about it that way. That's what you should write down. Write down all the ways being in Christ as a branch is in the vine means good news to you. So what do we learn about assurance from this picture? Well, the first thing we learn um, that, that, that gives us assurance through this picture of the vine um, and the branches is this. You must be rightly positioned. You must be rightly positioned. Now remember, this is the one point. So if you don't get this, I'm, I'm sorry. You must be rightly positioned. Or let's say it another way. Assurance of salvation depends on being positioned in Christ. This is where assurance of salvation begins. This is where assurance of salvation finds its continual life, continual hope. You must be rightly positioned. Now we see here in this uh, kind of metaphor here, a, a, a cast of characters. This isn't necessarily a parable like Jesus' other parables. There's not really a plot line to this. It's just a picture that he's painting. And we see in this picture various characters being painted as well, even in this, in these first, in this first verse, really. We see first, we see a true vine. We see a vine dresser, or literally a farmer, that's the father. And we see the branches. We see that, that we, the disciples of Christ, are the branches. Now, there's a reason why this metaphor is used so much in the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, you see Jesus use it in multiple ways in the New Testament, in fact. It's because vine branches, vines were everywhere. Sometimes a little city would have its own little city vineyard. Now, vineyards were the source of life, they were, they were income, they were money that you could, you could make. It, the, the ideal life for an Israelite was to have your own little private vine along your house. So vineyards were, were, were common pictures of prosperity and blessing. 
and Jesus often relies on them. And here we have him, him setting it up. He compares himself to the true vine. He compares his father to the vine dresser, and he can compares everyone that is in him to being like a branch. Now, there's significance in the fact that we are called branches, right? There's significance. But there, there's an actual purpose. Matter of fact, this is one of the things that I want you to see about being a branch in Christ Jesus. There is a simple purpose. Branches have a simple purpose. They're not made branches to be branch in name alone. They have a purpose. There's a reason why branches are there. And this is something Jesus really wants us to see for our assurance. They are there to bear fruit. One could say that is their singular purpose for being in the vine, so that they can bear fruit. The difference between a branch and just a piece of wood is that one bears fruit and the other is worthless. Actually, we see here in this picture that some branches don't bear fruit. They're removed. And, and these branches are, are useless. They are, what are they? What are they? Are they brought home to make a, a decorative door handle out of? Are, are there, is there another use for them that's handy? No, they uh, have one use, and that is to be burned in the fire. Matter of fact, this reflects the background thing. The, the vine branch that didn't bear fruit was worthless. It had no other purpose than to be burned in the fire. And once again, this brings us back. Jesus paints this picture in order to show that you, you, even young believer, have a single purpose. This is why you're in Christ. This is why you are, are, are attaching Christ's name to your name when you call yourself a Christian, Christ's slave. It is to bear fruit. The intention of all of God's grace in your life, of being in Christ, is for the purpose that you can bear fruit. Do something. Look at uh, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God's glory is attached to your fruitfulness. God's glory isn't attached to your branchfulness, but your fruitfulness. This is what God is after in your life. He's after your fruitfulness. Something that you produce as a result, as a consequence of you being in Christ Jesus. We see this theme all throughout. As a matter of fact, Fruitlessness is a very, very horrible state to be in. Matthew fifteen thirteen says that if you remain fruitless, it is actually an indication that the Father has never truly planted you. The God, the God that you serve has planted you to bear fruit. We see a different metaphor, a different picture, actually in Romans eleven seventeen, but it's a similar theme. It's about an an olive tree and olive branches being fruitful and, and we see actually God removing fruitless branches in order to make space and room for fruitful branches. This is what God's after. He's after fruitfulness in your life. And, and you, you heard this last week as well from Jaron who spoke very well from Second Peter, right? God has given you every spiritual advantage, every spiritual grace why? So that you can be fruitful. 
Second, Second Peter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's this life. That's godliness in this life. Through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own power and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And then down in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, right? Fruitlessness is bad. Fruitfulness is the purpose and the intention of God in our lives. We are saved to bear fruit. Matter of fact, flip over, hold your Hold your finger in there and flip over to Romans, Romans 6. I've been reading Romans a lot, and so I just can't not think about Romans, Romans 6 and Romans 7 in this. Romans 6 paints a majestic, glorious picture of how we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed and saved and delivered from the domain of sin and death. We, we have been like slaves of sin that have been delivered out of the servitude to slavery, to sin. And we have been put into service to God as slaves of righteousness. It's a majestic picture of salvation and deliverance. We've been redeemed. Why have we been given all this grace? Romans 6 begins with this question. Is it so that we can just do whatever we want? Is it so we can sin so that grace may abound even more and more and more? Right? The, the natural implication is, well, if God gets more glory for giving more grace, then I should just keep sinning and sinning and sinning so God gets more and more glory. But Paul actually says in Romans 6 that this would be against the very intention of God in saving you in your life. God's action and God's intention in saving you is so that you could bear fruits of freedom, fruits of righteousness, and fruits that show that you are now a safe of a gloriously new and better master that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united with him, um, Romans 6, 4 says, so that we might too walk in newness of life. We are spiritually united in Christ so that we can be also united with him in a newness of life. Or look over at 6.20. When, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Righteousness had no hold on you, no purchase in your life. No, no authority to command you. But, he asked this question in verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Right? That's, to, to a believer, thinking back on their past life, all of the fruit of their past life, all of the, the, the consequences of sin in their, their life is nothing but shame. It's it's like looking back. I mean, this is this is this is an analogy that you do not understand, but all the older leaders here will understand this instantly. It's like looking back at your old, you know, high school yearbook or high school pictures. It just brings you shame. That that is the fruit of of 
sin in your life. These, these, to a, a believer, these things have only brought me shame. But he says in verse 22, now that you have been, what, set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see God's action on display, right? God has done a lot to unite you in Christ so that you can die with Him and live with Him. And God's intention in all of that is not just so that you can be a dormant branch in name only, but so that you can bear new fruit. You can have new things in your life that are a direct consequence to you being freed from sin and alive to serve God. You could say it, this way, God's powerful salvation in your life puts you now in a position where you are finally able to do battle against sin. God's glorious salvation in your life puts you in a position where you are finally able to put on the new man. Before you were attached, united to Christ, you couldn't do these things. You were unable to do these things. As a matter of fact, look over in 7. In 7, Paul begins to, to make this case by arguing for what it was like in the old covenant situation where you did not have newness of life from inside of you and you did not have an ability to obey God's command. And it's actually a very um, um, depressing and miserable picture that we have in Romans 7. And notice how he makes this uh, argument begin in Romans 7 verse 4. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law, it's the old covenant, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, that's in our own strength and our own ability under the old covenant, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, and they were at work in our members to what? Pair fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God's power has come into your life through uniting you in Christ. But not so that you can be a dormant branch, but so you can be a fruitful one, so that you can belong to Jesus Christ and bear fruit that demonstrate that you belong to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? You have been given a singular purpose in being put into Christ so that you can produce fruit in your life. It may be small, but it is fruit nonetheless. God's desire for you is not just that you have feelings for God. God's desire for you is not that you just have a name that um, identifies you with God, being a Christian. God's desire for you is not even that you have good intentions for God. God's desire for you and his purpose and his intention behind your salvation in Christ is so that you can have fruit for God. And all of this comes to you through the blessedness of being in the new covenant in Christ Jesus and having the Spirit of God inside of you, producing fruit in you. Notice the old covenant despair. The old covenant despair that we see 
in chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is Paul speaking in a, in a hypothetical Old Covenant Israelite um, a character, you could say. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is the best he could do as an Old Covenant Jew. I have good desires, but no ability. But, but notice, in the New Covenant, in the Spirit, what do we have in verse 6? We have been released from the law, and now we can serve in the newness of the way of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the Old Covenant. Right there is a blessedness in the New Covenant that you get by being connected in Christ. You have the ability to not sin. You have the ability to perform acts of obedience to God. And all of this, going back to John, John 17, is for what? You are called to bear fruit. You are called to obey Christ. You are able to obey Christ finally for the first time ever. You're able to follow Christ finally for the first time ever so that you can bring glory to God. This is the purpose for which you are placed in Christ to bring glory to God in your fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. I want to show you what it means to be fruitful. Verse 8 of chapter 15. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then notice what he starts saying right there in verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Let's see. Let's look. First off, I wanted to... I wanted to to point out that the branch has a simple purpose. But secondly, let's, let's think about this picture a little bit longer. Notice that branches have also a simple dependency. They have a simple purpose, but they also have a simple dependency. And this is what Christ really wants you to see for your assurance and for your joy. This is a picture with a powerful truth just implied throughout it, right? This is a glorious picture that should free you from, from erroneous views of assurance and shall unlock to you the glories of where true assurance comes from. What is this a picture of? This is simply a picture of the second half of verse 5 that apart from me you can do nothing. Do you believe that? To be spiritually true of you? Apart from Jesus I can do nothing nothing everything that is fruitful that God wants in your life depends on you depending on Jesus everything that brings God glory in your life depends on Jesus and his work alive in you or you could say it this way fruit is impossible without a right relationship with Christ, fruit is actually impossible in your life. And there's a reason you don't see it, because you're not rightly related to Christ. Now here, I'll I'll illustrate this. I saw a wondrous 
theological principle being illustrated last night while I was at the park watching my kids on the swings. It, it was a wondrous picture. It was so rich and deep in its theology, I was like, wow. Just right here in the park. What was it? What did I see? Did I see a theological book explaining to me the ins and outs of something? No, I saw a tree. I saw a tree standing there with a bunch of branches coming out of it, all of them full of life. And I saw one other branch in this tree. Not full of life. Its, its leaves were wilting and brown. It's like, now why is that branch dying? It's connected to the tree. And I got closer to that branch. And I reached up and I grabbed that branch. And that branch came right out of the tree. It was not connected. It had broken off sometime before and was just hanging in the tree. So I removed it, because it kind of brought down the visual value of the tree. But do you see the picture that's so beautifully illustrated even in that picture? There's a reason that branch is not producing any fruit, any life, any foliage. It's not because the branch is not trying hard. Heavens knows it was. It was hanging on to that tree with everything it had. But it was not connected to the tree. It was fruitless. That is the simple dependency that Jesus wants you to see in him. You need to abide in me if you want to have any cause of spiritual fruit in your life. And by the way, did you see verse 8? If you want to prove that you are a disciple, you need to be producing fruit and abiding in me. By the way, this is not a picture. This is not a call to you to say, you better be producing fruit in your life so that Jesus can add you to his vine. That's not the picture that Jesus is painting here. He is painting the very opposite picture. He is saying, you bear fruit because you are in me. You bear fruit because you are rightly related to me. Perhaps the the right question would be this. The wrong question to ask yourself would be this. Am I producing yeah, that's a good question, but maybe that's not the, the best, most fundamental question you should be asking yourself. Perhaps the best, most fundamental question that you should be asking yourself is, am I rightly related to Jesus? Am I connected to him in the way that he calls me to be connected? Not in the way the world says I can be connected to Jesus, but in the way that he says you must be connected to me. Am I in Christ as Christ describes in Christ. What does that mean, by the way, to be in Christ? Well, there's, there's various ways it describes your life. There's, there's one aspect of the, the God word perspective, right? Being in Christ means you have sufficiency. From God's perspective, you have total sufficiency for everything that you need for life and godliness. You just saw that in 2 Peter 1. Right? To be in Christ means you're in Ephesians 1. You have every spiritual blessing that you require right now. You have everything you need for redemption in Christ Jesus, all of his righteousness and none of your regs, and you have everything you need for provision in Christ Jesus. That's all of the resources that you get in the Holy Spirit. That's from God's view of being in Christ. You have sufficiency in Christ. 
your your account is not seen by God, but it is Christ's righteous account on your behalf. Your judgment is not seen before God, but it is seen as satisfied in Christ's death on the cross. That is what it means to be in Christ. But from our view, what does it mean to be in Christ? How do you know you are in Christ? What are you doing right now that shows, that demonstrates that you are in Christ as Christ calls you to be in Him? Turn over to Luke chapter 9. Amen. Turn over to Luke chapter 9. We started out this series by going right to Jesus and how He defines His disciples. And it seemed basic and simple, but I think it is critical for young believers to understand. If you are going to follow Jesus, you must start the way He commands you to start. You must define a disciple the way He defines a disciple. Luke chapter 9 is one of the various places where he does this. Luke 9.23, Jesus says to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Did you notice how Jesus defines following him? If we could define, if we could use one word to describe Um, in Christ from God's perspective it is sufficiency but if we could use one word to define our perspective of being in Christ it would be called self-denial that is what it looks like from your perspective to be in Christ it means you deny everything to follow him you deny yourself you're ready to follow him even if it hurts and you are committed daily to following Him. You're following Him according to His definitions and His demands. You have assurance in your life, even in the smallest form. Why? Because you have renounced your way in your life. I'm following Him. He is Lord of my life. I am going to listen to no other masters. Jesus Word is law in my heart and in my mind, in my identity, in everything that I think about. Jesus' word is law. You renounce your way, but also you have to renounce your work. You have to deny yourself. You have to deny any basis or reason in yourself that you feel deserves or warrants you being in Christ. You say, I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. You must deny yourself to follow. It's a weird thing in our minds because we always attach following Jesus to being worthy of being followers of Jesus. But as Jesus defines it, you have to come to him saying, nothing, I got nothing. You are everything to me. That is how you follow Jesus. It is a total, simple dependency on him. Or to attach it to all the stuff we learned about in Exodus... You come to Him for everything and with nothing in yourself because you have been painted into a corner. You've been painted into a corner by your own inability. And you've been painted into a corner by His sufficiency. That is how you must come to Christ. That is the kind of start in the Christian life that brings instant assurance. Your way your work. That's what I'm trusting in Jesus. 